Well, good morning. I'm glad that you are all here on this fifth day of summer. And from what I hear, we may have two more days left. So I'm glad you decided to spend it in God's house this morning. Uh, one thing I failed to mention uh, in the announcements, this may cause you, you know, grief and gnashing of teeth. But after the service, we have a baptism. We have two baptisms, actually. Uh, so I hope you're not going, oh, no, that means we're going to be here all day. I'm going to try to keep it as short as possible, um, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, but once again, it's a pleasure to see you guys. And what a stirring um, start to the message when you have all y'all singing like you were. I could hear you up front. You know, sometimes when you're standing where I usually sit, you can't really hear everybody singing. But up in the front, it was very uh, thrilling to hear the congregation sing the gospel. And you were singing the gospel to each other, and you're encouraging one another. And actually, I was just sitting there thinking, so this is not going to happen. I was thinking, I said, wow, after those songs, I could just come up and say, thank you, Lord, amen, and go home. Because what you sang is the message that I'm going to bring this morning. And the message is, is not something new. It's not something that, that you're going to go, wow, that, he just is incredible. It's not going to be something that's going to blow your socks off. It's something that you know, but it's something that you probably don't apply to your life. And the reason I say that is because that has been me over the last month or so. started reading in Romans, and I came across this text that we're going to look at this morning, and I said, wow, is it really that powerful? Is it really that simple to be able to dwell and think about the gospel and preach it to myself to the point where I can start handling the discouragement and the disappointment that comes in life. It's like if, if you live here, you know, it's very discouraging and depressing when we don't have days like this, when it's 55 degrees and drizzling, and you're thinking, man, this could be the whole summer. That's enough to bring you down. Well, this morning, I hope that what I preach from God's Word today will be an encouragement to you. It'll be a reminder of what you have in Christ. I'm going to pray and we're going to read our text. Our text this morning comes from Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 18. The title of our message this morning is Mutually Encouraged by the Gospel. Mutually Encouraged by the Gospel. Let me pray and then we'll read our text. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we truly are thankful for the gospel. We're truly thankful, God, that we can meet here, gather together as believers, that, Lord, we can sing praises to you. We can sing the gospel to each other. And, God, we can hear the message preached from your word. I pray this morning, God, that you will open up eyes and open up hearts and ears to hear. I pray, Heavenly Father God, that that you'll remove me and you'll speak through me. Lord, I pray, God, that the word of God will go out with power, Lord Jesus, and conviction and with encouragement. Pray, God, now you'll bless this time that we have with one another. We ask these sayings in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. So we're reading now the, the, what we call the book of Romans, which is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to believers in Rome. So starting with verse 8, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, 
asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. A little background to the letter that Paul has written here. It's written from Paul while he was in Corinth to believers in Rome. These are both Jewish and Gentile believers, folks who are born again. He's written this to a church or maybe several churches that uh, he has never been to before but have been previously established. Could have been established during after the days of Pentecost. Could have been established when Paul, who was Saul, was breathing out threatenings to the church and persecuting the church. And Paul had never been to Rome as he wrote this letter. And in Romans chapter 15, Paul tells us that his desire was to preach the gospel in places to people who had never heard it. And that's why he says he never got to Rome is because of other things, other places he was going to preach. Now, after this letter, he would take a trip to Jerusalem with monies that were collected from the churches in Macedonia to give to the saints in Jerusalem. It was his wish, however, after that, on his way to Spain to proclaim the gospel, that he would stop in Rome and he would visit with those folks for a while. And then he would be encouraged by them and they would encourage him and they would be able to help support him probably monetarily and through prayers as he went into Spain to preach the gospel. Now, this original audience that heard this letter for the first time, you could say that this letter could have been written to at any church at any time to any people because of the fact that how relevant it is to us today because people are people. These people were being persecuted for their faith by the government. They were being persecuted by the Jewish religious people. And they were also susceptible to being led astray by false teachers, people who would come in to preach another gospel, to water down the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul said, if someone comes to you and preaches another gospel than what we preached, let him be a curse. We see that today. You can, you can go on YouTube, you can listen to messages, you can go to churches around the country, and they don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They preach a social gospel. They preach a gospel of works. Paul preached contrary to that. And like us, these believers needed to be strengthened. They needed to be encouraged. How many times have you, sitting in these chairs today, have felt that you were the only one going through what you were going through? Because in a group this size, I would 
guaranteed that there's somebody, if not one, two, or three, that in the moment that you're living in, the circumstances that have consumed your life, whether it be medical, whether it be financial, whether it be spiritual, that you've come to a point where you've kind of lost that joy that we sang about. And how awesome would it be to have that same enthusiasm about your relationship with Jesus Christ on a day-to-day basis? In the world we live in, we do often find ourselves more discouraged than encouraged. We find ourselves more depressed than we do feeling the joy of what God has provided for us. Because we live in a fallen world and we're fallen people, we're still sinners saved by grace. But the world that we live in, it seems to bring disappointment after disappointment where hope and joy fades in the background of our mind and discouragement seems to be what we have to pretend that we are not. We all put on the happy face We always greet each other with a smile, but inside there's turmoil. It's like what we read in the scripture reading this morning of Psalms 42. Why am I so discouraged? Why is my soul in turmoil? A quick rundown of the world that we live in. Global world economy is going belly up. Global politics are wrecked. Global wars. Right now, there are more than 110 armed conflicts going in the world right now and more to come. In our country alone, there's a lot of things to be discouraged about. Finances, the politics of our country, the cultural wars, the social issues. However, this morning, whatever state that you are in, whether it be your mental state, your physical state, your spiritual state, There's encouragement for you and for myself in the gospel. The definition of encourage is to inspire with courage, spirit, or hope. The opposite of encourage, as we all know, is discouragement. Discouragement is the absence of hope, the absence of encouragement, the absence of spirit and hope. Psychologists tell us, and I tend to agree... That as human beings, the vast majority of us have a tendency to gravitate toward the negative things in life. We're drawn like a moth to the flame to discouraging things. Examples, if you scroll through your news feed or if you listen to news or you read news, what are you gravitating toward reading? The negative headlines? What about gossip? Do you find yourself attracted to gossip, wanting to know what's going on in in everybody's life? We're drawn toward having negative comments come out of our mouth more than positive comments to other people, our husbands, our wives, our children. We actually respond more harshly and more it's more discouraging to us to hear the negative comments that people say about us than the positive comments. We can have one positive or one negative comment about something that we are like or what we do. Somebody can give us 50 compliments or affirmations, but as soon as we hear that one negative, we're discouraged again. We're depressed again. 
Like I said, Psalm 42, the psalmist wrote, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why am I so discouraged? Why am I so defeated? Why am I so depressed? And everyone reaches a point in their lives that they need to be encouraged. Remember, as Jesus was in the garden, the Bible says that the angels came and ministered to him. After he was tempted by the devil, the angels came and ministered to him to encourage him. We need encouragement. The way we often use encouragement today is basically mere comfort or words of affirmation. Oh, good job. You, you're doing a great job. You're a great mom. You're a great husband. You're, you can do this. I believe in you. And these words of affirmation are good. We are to encourage one another. We are to give each other words of affirmation. But sometimes those words of affirmation, like I just said, don't mean anything once we hear that one negative. We need encouragement to be able to be godly husbands and and godly fathers and godly wives and godly mothers, godly employers and godly employees, godly leaders and godly believers. So where can we find that kind of encouragement? Can we find it from motivational stories? No, motivational stories are awesome. And I, I'll watch a motivational story or, or a lecture. Man, I'm fired up. And then 30 minutes later, I'm right back to where I was at. Right? I coach uh, basketball. I've coached basketball for over 20 years. And you can motivate your players for a brief moment, but then when things don't go right, motivation's belly up, floating down the court, and then everything is in disarray. Our lives are like that. Can we get it from mere affirmation of people saying how good you are? No, because that fades quickly, and what happens, I want to hear more of it. Pete Johnson has to be cheered on 24-7, 365. I have to have that affirmation, because if not... I don't feel like I'm doing a good job. I don't feel like I'm worthy enough. And we all are like that. So what can I get encouragement from? We need to get encouragement that comes through the gospel. Because the encouragement that comes through the gospel, I want you to think about this, which is true. And it's upside down, as Jeff preaches about what the world says. Encouragement that comes from the gospel nurtures humility. It also nurtures courage, and above all, it nurtures hope in God, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42. An encouragement that comes to the gospel is not about making myself or somebody else feel good about themselves. It's preparing my mind, it's preparing your mind, it's preparing us to know, obey, and enjoy more of God. Jerry Bridges wrote in his book, he said, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Man, that's a good cliche. So, you know, growing up, I used to sit under a lot of good preaching and preachers would be preaching about the joy of God, bless God, and they would jump up and down. You know, I'm going, man, how come I don't have that kind of joy and happiness about the gospel? You know, a lot of that, I just want to say, is, uh, is, is not real. A lot of that is put on. You know why I know that? Because we do the same thing. We put on that look, and we put on that pretend that I have joy of my salvation, and but we really don't because we really don't do something 
that I have actually, for a better lack of words, experienced and experimented with over the last month or so. And that is this idea of preaching the gospel to myself. So what does that mean? Because, you know, we've all heard those things, but how do I put that in practice? Well, for me personally, before we get into the text, this is how I put it in practice. And I would recommend that you do the same thing because it will change your attitude. It will change your mind. The Apostle Paul, the same guy that wrote this, okay, said, be transformed by the what? Renewing of your minds. You have to, Peter wrote the same thing, prepare your minds for battle. So to me, what I started doing is these three things I'm going to share with you this morning, I've been repeating to myself because here it is. Everybody in this room sins on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes your sin is to the point where the devil says, see, there's no way you're born again. There's, you, you need to do this so that you... And then you're conflicted in your mind, even though you know the gospel, but the gospel has not changed your mind enough in the sense that you practice it, you preach to it, yourself, the gospel every day. So I'm in a situation... I start thinking about these three things, and then it's ab- it enables me to do the things that I can't do. Paul said the same thing. He said, there's a law that I found out that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. The things that I want to do, I wind up not doing. The things I don't want to do, I wind up doing. So how did Paul survive all this and be willing with joy to go get his head chopped off? How did the martyrs who stood for the faith in the Reformation and beyond, and then before that, how did they go to the stake and be burned alive and have that joy and that willingness to follow Christ wherever he would lead? I personally believe that it's because they understood the gospel and they preached the gospel to themselves. And Paul writes in verse 15 of Romans chapter 1, he says this, that I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. All right, so this letter Paul is writing to believers. I don't know of a letter that Paul wrote to non-believers, right? This is a letter he writes to believers in Rome. These people who accepted the gospel and born again, so why does Paul say, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome also? If you read it, you've got to ask these questions, right? So the first thing is, well, what is the gospel? Simply defined... And uh, I, I told Nathan this morning, early this morning, we met in the copy room. I said, I looked at what songs that he had selected. Nathan didn't know exactly what I was going to preach, but all the songs that he chose this morning, I believe is the work of the Holy Spirit, is coalesces with everything that I'm going to talk about this morning. And that's exciting. That's exciting. So the gospel, okay, is what we sang about, that Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, came to earth, born of a virgin, lived in a human body, and he was sinless, perfect. Yet he suffered like we did. He got thirsty, he got hungry, he got sad. He needed to be encouraged. But all those things without sinning. He's brought before the religious people of the day who hated him because of who he said he was and who he proved that he was. And they lashed him to a whipping post. And they took slices of flesh out of his back. Very bloody event, very painful event. Then they took 
They put a crown of thorns on him. They spit in his face. They slapped him. They mocked him. Then they hung him on a tree to die for you and for me. And while he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the Bible says that he gave up the ghost. He was dead, as dead as dead can be. They put him in a tomb, and three days later, he rose again. That's the gospel in a nutshell. But we have misconceptions about the gospel because, well, the gospel is for sinners. Yeah, the gospel is for sinners. A lot of times we think of the gospel as having a one-and-done job that it saves us, and then that's it. Sometimes we think about the gospel and its use as a spent aluminum round. If you shoot a handgun, a lot of times you don't want to shoot brass rounds because they're expensive to buy, especially if you don't reload, but you don't, you don't reload an aluminum shell casing because if you try to, they split. It can be dangerous. So a lot of times we think of the gospel as being an aluminum, aluminum casing, for a 44 Magnum, once it does its job, then it's discarded. And it's only for bringing lost people to the Savior. But it has more qualities than that. So I have a question for you as we go through this this morning. I want you to think about this. What can the gospel do for you this morning that it has not already done? Let me say that again. What can the gospel do for you this morning that is not already done? William Tyndale... And a lot of you are familiar with that name. He said, euangelion is what we call the gospel. is a Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. Does the gospel do that for you this morning? Does it do it for me? If we're honest, what would we say? I wish it did. I know And you would confess that I know that I'm born again. I know that I'm going to heaven. I've accepted the gospel. But I wish that I could have that joy unspeakable and full of glory. Because this world that I'm living in is just crushing me day in and day out. The problems that I have. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I need encouragement. This morning we want to look at three encouraging revelations regarding the gospel. That we as believers, and if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you need to be reminded of this on a daily basis. The first is in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let's just stop there. That, you could preach on that all afternoon. Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel. It means he didn't kowtow when it came when someone said, Are you A believer in Jesus Christ, are you part of the way? Do you believe this? Paul said, oh, yes, I do. Paul would have been the first one in the crowd if someone had said, who believes? Paul said, I believe. How often do we shy away from sharing the gospel? How often do we shy away from letting people know that we're a believer? Because, well, I I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. I don't want to be in a situation where I make them feel guilty. If you're not ashamed of the gospel, you'll live out the gospel. That's all through Scripture. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel all the way to the point where they chopped off his head. 
The gospel is something that we should rejoice in, not be ashamed of. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the necessary only means that God uses to redeem lost mankind. It's the only. There's no other gospel. The gospel that I explained to you in a nutshell, that's the gospel. That's the power that flows through that. And remember the word gospel is just designating its shorthand, if you will, for this miracle, this most wonderful thing that God has provided for enemies. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, Paul writes this in regards to the gospel and the power that it has. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The gospel is the power of God, not the power of man. The gospel is not a man-made religion. Man has no power or wherewithal to save himself. I mean, man does not even know he's lost when he's lost. Because the Bible says that you are dead in your trespasses and sin. The last I checked, dead people don't know that they're dead. So when you were an enemy of God, you didn't know that. You didn't care that you were an enemy of God. And because man is a sinner and God is holy and righteous, you and I are totally unable to reconcile ourselves with God. We're the ones that cause the offense, but we have no power to reconcile ourselves with God. There are no number of good things, good works that you can do to rectify your enemy status with God. An unsaved man or woman is an enemy of God. The Bible tells us that. Now, that person would tell you otherwise because they don't understand how God views them, nor do they really care how God views them. In the economy of God's holiness, merely saying, I'm sorry, I'll do a better job next time, doesn't cut it. Why is that? Because sin has to be paid for. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. That's the highest price that somebody will pay for anything. We have no power to be able to cover that debt. We don't possess the power to do anything about that. And that is a huge problem for mankind to overcome. Impossible, actually. The word power here in the text is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get the English word dynamite. Now, dynamite, if you're familiar with that, if you like to blow things up, was invented by Alfred Nobel, whom we get the Nobel Peace Prize from. But when he invented this, it was not an implement of war. It was used in the sense that it would help out mankind, like building roads, construction stuff. And Nobel named it thus, the Greek word, dunamis, which means power, because that's the only thing that he could think of that would explain what this device that he had created, this compound that he had created, because dynamite had the literal power to move mountains. 
You stop and think about the gospel is the power of God. It's the only thing that can literally move the mountains and the obstacles from your life that are sending you to hell. Paul also tells us that within the gospel, the power of God, of salvation, is not to all men. It's to all men who believe. So let's park it there for a little bit because there's something I think you need to understand about this word, believe. The word believe, or what we use the word faith, is the Greek word pistis. And what it implies is that this is confidence in God What God says he can and will do, he actually does do and will do. I look at it this way because I'm I'm kind of a dumb country guy from the swamps of Bay George, Florida. This is being convinced outside of my own logic and reasoning that this gospel message is true. You stop and think about that. How simple is the gospel? I've got to have the faith to believe. I've got to be more than that. I've got to work for it. I've got to present myself Righteous, I've got to do some sort of good work so God will accept me. No, it's not. It's the faith that God gives you and I. Because we can't muster that faith up on our own. It's impossible because we don't have the power to say, I think I will believe today. Paul wrote a letter to a young preacher boy in Ephesus who's taken over a, a fairly large church that's going to have some problems and how would you like to be the young preacher boy that where the Apostle John was there, right? It's like, oh, am I saying the right thing, right? So he writes this to Timothy about the gospel. And Paul says it in so much a better way than I am. So let's hear what Paul said in regards to this thing about faith and the power of God in the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Paul writes to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, here it is, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Now, if you've been dozing, I want you to wake up right now because you need to hear this. Paul writes this. It's the same thing he, we're reading in Romans. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. This is a form of the Greek word pistis. I've been convinced. I know whom I believe, and I am convinced. Same word but used as a synonym for what the Greek word pistis means, faith. I have been convinced outside of my own thinking that this is true and that he is able, talking about God, to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Paul writes this. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul writes this, For the word of the cross, that's the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of the dunamis of God. The power of God not only saves us, but it keeps us saved eternally. 
Jude 24 says, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Jesus' very words in John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, Jesus said this, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Paul also said in Philippians 4.30, said the born-again believer is sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And then the most convincing proof text that Paul writes is in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39. He says, For I am sure, that word sure is the same Greek word, the root word pistis, that neither death nor life. I've been convinced beyond my thinking that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So no matter what's going on in your life, the circumstances that you're struggling with, the discouragement that you're involved in, the depression... You need to think about the power of God that's in the gospel that saved your soul. And you need to meditate on that. You've got to change the way that you think. So God's power that's revealed through the gospel, through Christ, it does the saving. We don't. The power of God that is revealed through the gospel provides power over sin. The Bible teaches us that I'm born again, I can say no to sin. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. It enables the enemies of God who we were. Let that sink in. You were an enemy of God at one point. The Bible says while we were yet enemies, God died for us. So it enables the enemies of God to be reconciled to him. And I love this. I, uh, this morning, Lena Carberg was quoting, and I'm going like, wow, she's smarter than I am. Because I just kind of fell into this this week. I've read it. But then it was like flashlight on the page. And I said, this is fantastic news. In, in Romans chapter 4, verse 16, and Paul was talking about the faith of Abraham, that Abraham knew that the power of God is what gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Beloved, that's encouraging. You meditate on that. And you focus your mind on that, that's encouraging. God has done something for you that you cannot do yourself. We sing about that, we talk about that, but do we really feel that? Do we really believe that? Have we been convinced beyond our own logical, reasonable thinking that that's true? Secondly, in verse 17 of Romans chapter 1, we see that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Now, this is not saying that. God is righteous because that has been established way back in the Old Testament. Because righteousness is part of God's divine attributes. It is the standard or the requirement, if you will, for entrance into heaven that we can't obtain either. And this is all part of the power of God. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. And this word righteousness is a legal term. And in a biblical context, it regards the idea of divine approval. Now think about that. Divine approval. That means the God of creation, the God who spoke the worlds into existence. If you're born again this morning, 
divinely approves of you. For what reason? For the pleasure of his good will is why he did that. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, that made alive in the spirit. The religious Jew, like Paul was, and even today the religious people, put confidence in the law, or put confidence in works. And they think that this will give them the power to be divinely approved by God. I do all these good things, and then one day I'll stand before God, and God will measure it out and say, yeah, you did more good than you did bad. Folks, if you're following that game plan, hell will definitely be your home. In Philippians 3, chapter 3 through 9, Paul juxtaposes how he was as a Pharisee to after he became a born-again believer, that road to Damascus when he came face-to-face with the grace of God. And he lists his accomplishments, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. That was humongous for a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Man, you know what tribe that you came from. After After the diaspora, you know all this stuff. He said he was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was the cat's meow when it came to religion. But yet when... He was changed by the power of the gospel on that road to Damascus. He said he realized that what he thought was his righteous works meant nothing. And he was standing naked before God in his sin, cursed to suffer the wrath of God. But yet God chose to use Paul to save Paul. At the end of that section of scripture in Philippians, Paul writes this. He says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or from working for it, but that which comes through, there's this word again, faith, being convinced totally outside of my own thinking. God does that in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends solely on faith. H.A. Ironsides wrote this. He says, man is both by nature and practice utterly unsuited to a God of infinite holiness whose throne is established on righteousness. Here it is. God accepts us as righteous because of Christ's righteousness. The more did you meditate? Now, right now, this is kind of like pouring water on a duck's back. It probably comes right off. You go, I don't feel any different. Well, you won't until you meditate on it. You put these things into practice. You recall them every day. Psalm 42, the psalmist said, I will remember these things and I will have hope in God even though my soul is in utter distress. So the unrighteous made righteous. In other words, if you're born again this morning, it's through the power of God, not of your own, and you are, listen to this carefully, you are perfect in position, not practice, right? Right? Think about that. How glorious is that? None of us in this room are perfect in practice. But our position, because what Christ did is God sees you. If you're one of his children, you're perfect in position. You have Christ's righteousness. And that's something to be excited about. So, so far, we've seen that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And thirdly, And this is super exciting. 
The gospel exempts believers from the wrath of God. Look in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from where? From heaven. Where does the gospel come? From heaven. This all ties in. Against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But what is the wrath of God? Well, that's something important that we need to know whether you're a believer or not. Because in regards to eternity, everybody in this room is going to live as long as God lives. But where will you live? Will you live under the curse and the wrath of God in hell forever? Or will you be in heaven with God forever? In context of eternal matters, the wrath of God is an eternity in hell separated from God. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, John the Baptist described hell as an unquenchable fire. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 and 46, Jesus himself described hell as an eternal fire and eternal punishment. In Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48, Jesus again describes what eternal hell will be like, an unquenchable fire, a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Hell is a real place just as heaven is a real place. In Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was the beggar that sat under the rich man's table. And the Bible says that the rich man died. He lifted up his eyes in hell. He saw Abraham afar off and he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus, that beggar that used to be under my table, have him dip his finger in some water and stick it on my tongue because I am tormented. I am in anguish in these flames. The rich man understood exactly where he was at and what it felt like. You don't become numb to the flames of hell. But if you're a believer this morning, the Bible promises that the, the flames of the fire will not lick your feet, will not burn your hair because you won't ever be in hell. You won't have to pay for any kind of sins that you've done in hell or purgatory. The Bible is clear that if you're born again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Heaven will be your home. That's something to be super excited about, no matter your circumstances. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians, in regards to what is the wrath of God like, wrote this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. It says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels... In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Hell is the eternal dwelling place for the condemned, the enemies of God who do not obey the gospel. If you're saved this morning... You're exempt for that. You're exempt from the wrath of God. You're exempt from the fires of hell. Romans 8.1, this is Paul again. He writes this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 4, verse 7, 8, Paul describes it this way. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, 
Blessed is the man who sin. Listen to this. The Lord will never count against him. So this morning, the gospel, how can we be encouraged individually and how can we mutually be encouraged by the gospel by meditating on these three things? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's not up to you. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God imputed to us. There's nothing that we can do. And thirdly, the gospel exempts believers from the wrath of God. So this morning, believer, you have a choice. I have a choice. No matter how bad it gets here on planet Earth, I can choose to focus on how bad things are and just drive myself into further discouragement and depression, or I can focus on these truths about the gospel and how good God is. Because the truth be known, when's the last time you really actually meditated on these three things about the gospel? I'll be transparent. I didn't until about a month ago. But I have seen in my own life meditating on these things and bringing the mind the truths of the gospel when the devil, the enemy, is saying, where is your God? Your life is miserable right now. Oh, you just did this? How can, you really, how can God really love you? You need to do more good things so God will accept you. I go back to the truths of the gospel, and that's encouraging. This morning, if you're not a believer, if you've never accepted that free gift that Christ came to give... You don't have the power of God in your life. And no matter what you try to do, how many times you go to church, how many times you read your Bible, how many times you give to a great cause, hell will be your home. If you're not born again, you have no righteousness. As good as you think you are, you're not good enough. And thirdly, for the believer, will spend eternity in heaven with God and our Savior. But the non-believer, you'll live as long as God lives, but yet you'll live in eternal torment in hell for eternity. So now if you're, if you're a believer, you have a choice to make, like I said, but if you're a non-believer this morning, you also have a choice to make. As the Holy Spirit convicts your heart, maybe this morning you're saying, Pete, I don't, I, I don't know if I'm truly born again. I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Don't leave this building before you know for sure. You can come talk to me after the service. There's other people that will be more than willing, men and women, to talk to you about your eternal soul. So this morning, I want to encourage you. Believer, meditate on this. I'm just telling you by experience, I know that it has an effect. And you do too, because you believe that God's word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Meditate on those things. Encourage one another even. You know what's mutually encouraging? Is when we do this, when we meet together, when we fellowship with one another, when we sing, like Nathan said, that's mutually encouraging each other in the gospel.